Amen. I just want to meditate on that for a while. Goodness of God in the light of our wickedness, our sinfulness. And in his goodness, he's, he pursued us uh, to save us. And then after he saved us, he continues to pour out his goodness on us. The goodness of God. If you open your copy of the scripture to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Verses 16 through 19 is where we pick up this Lord's Day morning uh, as we continue our exposition uh, through uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 11, zero your attention in on verse 16. And hear the words of Jesus. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang, sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. I want to use as a subject, a title for these uh, verses, A Parable of the Unsatisfied Generation. When men or women do not want the truth of God, but prefer their sin and sinful lifestyle instead, they will find an excuse or excuses to reject both the message and the messenger of God. That was the case Jesus encountered among his contemporaries whom he designated in verse 16 as this generation. John the Baptist and Jesus both preached the gospel. Included in their proclamation was the call to repent. Believe the gospel because the kingdom of God is near. To justify their rejection of the forerunner of Jesus and Jesus himself, this generation that Jesus is addressing found fault with their lifestyle and style of ministry. The problem, of course, was not with Jesus or John. The problem was with the fault finders. The problem when men have a problem with God and his word is always with men. It's always with sinful men. It is never with God. On other occasions, Jesus amplifies this. He diagnosed the spiritual condition of this generation. For example, in Matthew 12, verse 39, he called them, quote, an evil and adulterous generation. Adulterous, there in that text, referenced their spiritual infidelity, infidelity to God. They, uh, they were unfaithful to him. They broke his covenant. They were self-righteous in their religion. In Mark chapter 9, verse 19, Jesus said, Oh, unbelieving generation. The interjection, oh, expressed his emotion as he contemplated the lostness of unbelief. Mark chapter 8, verse 38, Jesus says, adulterous and sinful generation.'" 
Luke 9, verse 41, our Lord says, You unbelieving and perverted generation. They were perverted because they failed to believe. And in the mind of the Lord, that is a perversion. To fail to believe God's word is a perversion. Now, Israel in general, in this instance, Luke chapter 9, verse 41, they fit that bill. Even the disciples were involved in this, for they themselves even failed to believe. But we need to understand here, the Lord did not mean by his indictment of his contemporaries to include every single person. Because we know there were exceptions. We know there were some who did repent, some who did believe. Everybody doesn't reject the gospel. In fact, uh, this very book that records this was written by a man who didn't reject the gospel, but rather received it, Matthew. There will be those who will listen. But the majority in Israel, you do need to understand, majority in Israel refused to receive Jesus as Messiah. They had seen all the evidence. The evidence was multiplied, multiplied, multiplied. It was indisputable. Even the leaders understood the miracles that he did. They knew it. But they rejected him as Messiah for a number of reasons, and thereby they foreclosed on their opportunity to experience eternal life. In our passage, that we're addressing this morning, that that generation that Jesus designates that reject him, he didn't use the word unsatisfied, but he characterized that evil, unbelieving, adulterous, sinful, perverted generation as unsatisfied with both he and John. They had a lack of interest. They were in their spiritual indifference prompted Jesus to make a comparison. And therefore, we'll call it, uh, this comparison, the parable of the unsatisfied. The parable of the unsatisfied. That's our first heading. Verse 16, you see Jesus said, but to what shall I compare this generation? Obviously, he's not asking for input. It's a rhetorical question. These words that I just read, but what shall I compare this generation were a common Jewish way of introducing a parable. And in case you're wondering, yes, there's biblical basis for backing up that statement. Because in Matthew chapter 13, verse 24, as he talks about the parable of the tares and the wheat, Jesus says he presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. So when we read this here in our text, we understand that Jesus is launching into a parable. Now we need to define what is a parable. Here's a definition. A parable is an elongated simile or metaphor with a distinctly spiritual lesson contained in the analogy. End of quotation. Jesus here in this text, uses children in marketplaces as a parable. They contain a spiritual lesson. 
He draws from uh, the play of children to illustrate a, a spiritual lesson, to drive home a truth, the spiritual about himself and about John. The children are analogous to these, this unsatisfied generation by their behavior. We can see in the text here, Jesus is now answering his rhetorical question that he enunciated in the first part of verse 16. He says, it is like children sitting in the marketplaces. Those two words, marketplaces, bear some explanation so we can understand when Jesus used that, his immediate audience, they understood precisely what he was talking about. But for us, we need to explain it so we can grasp what was going on in the first century when Jesus said it. The, the, the marketplace was in the center of town. It was a place for public gatherings where people went to do business and to socialize. On certain days of the week, farmers, craftsmen, and merchants of all sorts would bring their produce or wares to the marketplace. And they'd sell them from stalls, they'd sell them from tents, and from carts. Now, you need to understand that while these craftsmen were doing this, while they were there in the marketplace, while they were socializing, the children needed to do something because the parents would take the children with them. But in the first century, they didn't have designated playgrounds like we do today. No jungle gems. <laughs> no seesaws. No OSHA. <laughs> no, no, nothing. Uh, so, but, but the kids needed to play because kids of all generations since Adam and Eve like to play. So they played there. What's fascinating about this, Jesus saw all of life as a means whereby he could teach spiritual lessons. Obviously, he observed children in the playground, or on the playground in the agora, the marketplaces, and he draws out this understanding. So they would play while their parents socialized, bought and sold. All of that, they would play. And here is what they would do. Verse 16, the bottom of the verse, it says, Who call out to other children and say, verse 17, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. <laughs> the games they played, this is the first one. They, what they did, they imitated adults. They imitated the... Um, social activity of adults. This first one, we played the flute for you. They, they were saying, let's play the wedding game. We played the flute for you. They played the flute, obviously, at weddings, and people would dance. It was, uh, the nuptials were celebrated. It was a joyous time. It was a big social event in Israel. And so when that happened, everybody enjoyed it. And those kids are seated, and they say, let's, let's do that. Let, let's play the wedding game. Hmm. But notice, and they say, but you did not dance. The playmates wouldn't participate. No, we don't want to do that. So it's okay. You don't want to play the wedding game. Let's play another game. Let's play the funeral game. 
Notice that's why it said in verse 17, we sang, sang a dirge. A dirge is a mournful song. It's a song for the dead. Well, obviously you know, if you, we read it, it says, and you did not mourn. The children, the, the playmates did not want to play. You know what the deal is? Neither game satisfied them. Nah, we don't play. We don't want to play the wedding game. Nah, we don't want to play the funeral game. Here's the point. Just as stubborn, indifferent children playing in the marketplace refuse to listen to their playmates, the generation of John and Jesus refused to listen to them. That's the lesson Jesus is teaching. These kids don't want to play. They're not listening. And Jesus said, this generation, they don't want to listen either. Why? Why this? The parable of the unsatisfied generation, they didn't want to listen. They weren't satisfied with neither John nor Jesus. Why? The criticism, it's next heading, the criticism from the unsatisfied. Verse 18. For John neither came neither eating nor drinking. Let's stop there for a moment. There was a point in John's ministry when people were excited about him. For the first time in 400 years, there was a prophet in Israel. The 400 silent years were over. God was giving revelation through a prophet again. And the people were overjoyed that God was speaking from heaven through a prophet, giving them his word. And they enjoyed John the Baptist for a while. Jesus is recorded saying in John chapter 5, verse 35, about John, he was a lamp that was burning and shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. <laughs> John was a lamp. He conveyed the light. He wasn't the light. Jesus is the light. John uh, had derived light. John was a witness to Jesus. He was a shining light in a dark place, a spiritually dark place. This light of this prophet who had God's word, he was shining. People liked that for a while, Jesus said. The Jewish people, even many of the leaders, chose for a time to enjoy the light. In fact, they flocked excitedly out to the wilderness. Let's go. I can imagine, this is my imagine. I can hear them now. Say, Let's pack a lunch. Let's go, Let's go hear this prophet. But the excitement dissipated and the enjoyment ended. Why? What was it that made the people after a while say, you know, I'm kind of tired of this. I mean, this is exciting for a while because, you know, we had four centuries of no prophet, now we got one. But, you know, I'm really kind of sick of this John the Baptist. But Jesus said just for a little while they rejoiced. What curtailed their enjoyment? What dissipated their excitement? Well, I'll tell you why. 
because of John's stern call to repentance. His denunciation of the nation's hypocrisy. John was putting his finger on the spiritual problem of the people of Israel. He was saying, you need to repent. He, he wasn't one of these pillow prophets like the, the false prophets in the Old Testament who said everything is going to be all right, peace, peace. No, he was saying, you need to repent. You need to stop your hypocrisy. And people, mm, I don't like that so much. He wasn't one of those kind of preachers who said, your blessing is just around the corner. This is your season. No, no, no. He wasn't lying to people. He was telling them, no, what you need to do is repent. You need to do away with your hypocrisy, your hypocritical religion. And so people, that's one of the things. We've had enough of this. That's not all. Get this. He baptized Jews. Said, so, well, what's the problem there? The Jews baptized Gentile proselytes. Proselytes were Gentiles who converted to Judaism. But by baptizing Jews, they regarded them already as part of God's kingdom. Hence, they didn't need a baptism. What do you mean, baptizing Jews? We're part of the kingdom. Gentiles weren't part of the kingdom. They had to be baptized to get in it, and they're thinking, and here's the idea. Here we go. We're talking about we Jews need to be baptized? No, no, no. We're Jews. We're Abraham's descendants, remember? He said, no, no, no. You need to confess your sins and be baptized. Well, this alienated them. You see, they didn't want the truth about themselves. That was the problem. They didn't want to be confronted by their life and their spiritual need. So the people's attraction to John, their excitement was all superficial. They lacked genuine repentance. They loved darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil, John 3, 19. I said, nah, had enough of that preaching and that preacher. Here, get this point. Sinners would rather keep their sins than turn from them and receive eternal life. That is a foolish and eternally tragic decision. There are people, I'm going to tell you right now, who are in Hades, wish they had made a different decision. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that's not because they're separated from their loved ones. That's because they're experiencing their judgment. Sinners would rather keep their sins. That's foolish, short-sighted. To continue to sin... Reject eternal life. I'm going to tell you something. That not only happened then, but that happens now. Did you not know that there are people who have that same attitude? Second Timothy chapter 4, 
verse 3. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen. I'm going to read it and expound on it momentarily. For a moment, notice for the Paul writes to Timothy, and he is writing to Pastor Timothy. Timothy is the pastor of the church at Ephesus, and so he's talking about people in the church. He's not talking about those people who are outside the church, but people who are in the church, who show up. He says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. I, I want a preacher going to tell me how to get rich. <laughs> Amen. Who are these people who will not endure sound doctrine? They're professing Christians. They're Christians in name only. They have really never experienced conversion. They've never really truly repented. They don't want sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is healthy doctrine that comes from the Word of God that helps us to be godly people. They say, I don't want that. I want something that's going to make me feel good. Give me a pleasant sensation. Entertain me. Itching ear preachers. And notice they will accumulate for themselves. Accumulate, not just one or two. They get a bunch of them, teaching according to their own desires, fleshly desires. We have that today. And we'll continue to have that today. As long as you've got people who profess faith in Christ, but do not possess genuine faith in Christ. They're going to flock to those who will entertain them, make them feel good about themselves, won't confront them about their sin, let them go on and live the way they want to as long as they keep on coming and bringing that money in there. That was the problem with the people who had with John. As I said, he put his finger on their spiritual problem. So they repudiated John and his message. So what do they do? Go back to the, our main text. And you can see they began to criticize him. Uh, they say, uh, he came neither eating nor drinking. He didn't come socializing. He was out in the desert. He was aloof. He, he was doing what God called him to do. He, he didn't hang around in town. So he was out there, so he didn't come eating and drinking. That's what they're saying. He, he's not part of the social scene. He's not coming and sitting down to lunch with a Pharisee. He didn't drink wine, Luke chapter 7, verse 33. In fact, he was prohibited from drinking wine, according to Luke chapter 1, verse 15. He came neither drinking nor eating. That's what they were saying. Now, it doesn't mean in absolute sense they didn't need a drink because they had to do that to live, right? And the Bible tells us he ate locusts and wild honey. Can you imagine that for a diet? Can you imagine every day locusts and wild honey? You see, if you had a diet like that, you wouldn't be worried about where you're going to eat after church. <laughs> some more of the same. I'm having some locusts and wild honey.
It was, it was an austere lifestyle. It was an ascetic lifestyle. Even his garment. Remember he wore a garment of caramel, uh, camel hair. Why was he like this? I've already told you about the substance of his message. Repentance. And his message corresponded to the seriousness and severity of repentance and judgment. It was a message that doomed sinners needed to hear. People need to be warned of judgment to come. Personal judgment is coming if they don't repent. That's grace. As I say these words, I think about how gracious God is. He would send someone to tell us what our real need is. He doesn't mollycoddle us, telling us how good we are. No, no, no. He tells us what we are, really, and how we can remedy our situation. Personal judgment if they do not repent, and the judgment is eternal damnation. You know, people can die at any time. People die at any time. What I mean by you don't know when it could happen. There are people who died here recently. They didn't anticipate they'd be dead. And, and we have a, a flawed view of uh, catastrophes and what we call untimely deaths. Jesus didn't. You know the text, uh, Luke 13 they came to Jesus to tell him about, it says in verse 1 of Luke 13, now on the same occasion there was some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? No, no, that's not it at all. That was the supposition behind their thinking, oh, they must have been awful. Look, they're dead. This catastrophe happened to them. Therefore, they were the worst sinners. And Jesus undercut that false supposition of theirs. And he says, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all... No. Jesus said, uh, no, they weren't worse sinners. They weren't guilty of any particular sin, these people. But this is a warning. Their deaths were a warning. If you don't repent, you're going to perish too. He wasn't saying you'll die the exact same way, but he was saying you will perish, that is, you'll be destroyed eternally. Interestingly, Jesus took that tragedy and pointed to their need for repentance. People can die at any time. Sudden death. I was stunned this week. When I saw in a news report about a young athlete, I, I, I keep a track and field to a degree. Uh, I, um, and I saw this young lady, Tori Bowie, died. When I saw it, I was stunned. I, just, I said, what? 32 years old. She's an athlete. She can run. She won gold medal in the Olympics. 
She's dead. So, wow. I don't know why, how she died or why. Maybe the autopsy will show something. But they found that she'd been dead a couple of days, apparently. The wellness check, I understand. You think when you're 32, you don't think, yeah, I'm 32. I don't know if she thought this, but I can imagine at that age, I was that age. Once she didn't consider, oh, you know, my days are really numbered. I don't know when I could go. That's why it's important to hear the truth and come to the truth. John's ministry was rejected because this ministry is more like a funeral. And further they criticized and they said at the bottom of the verse 18 it says here in Matthew 11 he has a demon. Something's got to be wrong with him. He's out there preaching repentance. And in the parallel account in Luke chapter 7 verse 33 Jesus said the words you say. In fact, there were some people in the audience listening to Jesus who had said about John the Baptist that he had a demon. John was not demon-possessed. He was spirit-filled. Luke chapter 1, verse 15. He was spirit-filled from his mother's womb. He was under divine control and influence. His preaching of repentance and judgment was the message that God had given him, and it was the message that he was under divine control and influence to preach. You didn't or was not possessed by a demon. So they said those things so they could excuse themselves from accountability for the message. And Jesus is telling them that's why you did it. You're not satisfied with John, but not only were you not satisfied with John and his lifestyle, his ministry style, you're not satisfied with me either. That's what he's saying in verse 19. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard. Jesus' lifestyle of ministry and his life, uh, style of ministry is markedly different from John's. He starts off by referencing himself as the Son of Man. Son of Man used 80 times in the New Testament. Jesus' favorite self-designation. Son of Man, meaning he is Messiah. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. And they say, look, he's a gluttonous man and a drunkard. May I just say it? That was a bold-faced lie. It's blasphemous. To call Jesus a drunkard is to call him unwise and a sinner, neither of which he was. And they exaggerated the use of wine. I remember, um, I was thinking about this and working on this week. <laughs> I, when I was, I think it was junior high school, a friend of mine and I, we had a teacher, I've forgotten the, the class it was, we had a debate with him about Jesus and drinking wine. To us, Jesus drinking wine is anathema, the whole idea. He said, oh, yes, Jesus drank wine. He was a professing Christian. By the way, his last name was Joy. <laughs> uh, interesting. So, Mr. Joy said, oh, yes, yes. My best friend and I said, no, 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 he didn't do that. <laughs> 
So we're kids, you know, 14, 15, whatever. Well, let me tell you what's going on here. They accused Jesus of being a drunkard. He was not, obviously. The wine Jesus and most other Jews drank was oinos. A drink made by boiling or evaporating fresh grape juice down to a heavy syrup or paste to prevent spoilage and to simplify storage. Water was added to this paste or this syrup as needed. Small quantity of it. That mixture was non-alcoholic. You get that? Non-alcoholic. I want to say that. Non-alcoholic. So when you know Jesus drank wine, you got to put there non-alcoholic. You see, you need to know how they did it back in the day. It's not like going down to wherever they sell wine in this city and getting you some wine and say, oh, praise the Lord, after church. I want to follow Jesus, even in my eating and drinking. Non-alcoholic. <laughs> and even when allowed to ferment, it was not intoxicating. You couldn't get drunk off of it. Get that? No intoxication. No buzz. Is that the word? <laughs> no getting high. Because it was mostly water. You need to get, keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. Well, having the background is important to know what was happening in that culture at that time, to know how they handle these things. They also said about him, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Hmm. The rejectors of Jesus misconstrued his association with tax collectors. Tax collectors, obviously, as you know, they were despised people in Israel because they had collected or did collect taxes for Rome, the hated Romans. So if you work for the Romans, you were hated. And sinners, the people that they thought, particularly the religious leaders, the Pharisees and scribes, because they, you know, they were above everybody. So they thought in their own self-righteous, legalistic, sin-sick minds, better than everybody else. So everybody else was less than them. They were sinners. They were dregs of society. And they said, here's Jesus associating with these persona non grata. Sinners. Why did Jesus do that? Because that was his mission. His mission in associating with the despised outcast of Jewish society was to save them. In fact, you recall in, in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 2, uh, the Pharisees grumbled about him being involved 
with people like this, and he gave a parable, lost coin, lost sheep, and the prodigal son. Remember that? And when a sinner repents, no matter who he is, how deep he has gone down into sin, when that sinner truly repents, there's joy in heaven. It's joy to God. And Jesus was seeking to save that which was lost. They could criticize John and Jesus' style all they wanted. But you notice what it says in verse 19. Jesus' reply to their criticism. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. It's divine wisdom. Not all who hear the gospel message will reject it. Divine wisdom is proven true by its product. What is the product of true spiritual wisdom? Salvation. Salvation produces righteous people. And those righteous people demonstrate their salvation by their deeds. Both John and Jesus' ministry produced salvation. John's style was different from Jesus's, and Jesus's style was different from John's, but both of them brought salvation to lost men and women. See, the problem isn't, as I said earlier, it is not the message. It's not even the messenger. The problem is with the rejecter. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says this, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That word foolish, as you may know, is the Greek term uh, from which we get the word moron from. It's, they were saying the gospel, the death of a man on a Roman cross, that is absolute nonsense, that is foolishness. They look to their own wisdom. And in their own fallen, corrupt wisdom, they conclude that God's wisdom is foolishness. How foolish is that? Some lost, corrupt, sinful man who's on his way to hell thinks he's wiser than God. <laughs> How foolish. They're perishing. Destruction of eternal judgment. But those of us who believe we're being saved. We were saved initially, transferred from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of light, justified our sins, forgiven, and we're being saved, but we're being delivered increasingly from sin's tyranny by our holiness as we grow in holiness. And one day, our salvation will be completed as we stand with redeemed bodies in the presence of Jesus Christ forever and ever. Jesus um, told his generation what their problem was. He could say that to every succeeding generation. In our day, perhaps, you were here, you say, Generation X. 
generation Gen Z. Y'all have heard of them? Okay. <laughs> Demographers, you okay. The me generation. Remember that one? I know you remember this, the Pepsi generation. <laughs> the baby boomer generation. I'm a part of that one. He would say to all of those in those particular demographic distinctions, listen. If you consider the word of the cross foolish, you're perishing. But in both those, all of those generations that I enlisted, there are receptors and rejectors of the gospel. Here's the question. Which one are you? A receiver of the gospel or a rejecter of the gospel? If you reject the gospel, keep this in mind. There's nothing wrong with the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek, God will save you if you'll turn to him in faith. He will receive you. He will forgive you. And Jesus says, all who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. And when the moment you say yes to Christ, you've exercised real wisdom. Wisdom given to you by God to believe on his son. What will you do with the gospel? What will you do with Christ? Let's bow together. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the word of God again this morning. The word that uh, clarifies for us the truths that really ultimately matter. I pray for any in this room this morning, those who are here without Christ, that you open their eyes to the truth and they will come to him. Say yes to Christ and receive eternal life. Serve him him serve you we pray for uh, those who are saved already that need a church home where they can be your instruments in the life of this fellowship by their contributions and their spiritual gifts and service so Lord we uh, look to you to do only that which you can do that's real and will last forever we thank you for the truths help us who are believers and continue to grow in our ability to articulate the, the truths that we're t you learn teaching us from your word to help those who need to hear the word outside these walls who need Jesus Christ these things we pray in his glorious name amen